You are now listening to the October 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Joseph McDonald with the fourth part in our series that focuses on a special privilege of Christians. This is Forgiveness. After Joseph was sold off to an unknown merchant by his brothers, he seemed justified to hold a prolonged, simmering grudge against his brothers. Yet, he did not seem to. He did not seem to count the day of revenge for what they had done to him. We know this from seeing how he interacted with his brothers when he finally met up with them. He did not act harshly, but acted under a broad perspective that everything happened according to God's grand plan. It was God's will to send Joseph to Egypt through his brother's wrongdoing, and it was his will for Joseph to become the ruler at the right time to save his father and brothers. Joseph saw how God stretched his hand to prepare his family to become a great nation of Israel in 400 years. Because of all these things, Joseph did not act revengefully against his brothers. What he did do was forgive them. As a matter of fact, we do not see a record of his brothers apologizing to him. No record of his brothers seeking his forgiveness. What we see instead is Joseph simply forgiving them from his part. It may not be possible for us to know how our forgiving someone today will produce what kind of fruits later, like 400 years later, as is the case with Joseph and the Israelites. That is why we should not give in to our immediate thoughts of getting even and negative personal emotions. Instead, we should be able to see the bigger picture, one that involves God's work through his mighty hands. Today, we are going to consider the underlying concept of forgiveness as it appears in the Bible. First, we raise the question as to why we usually have a hard time forgiving others. Ironically, perhaps it may be because we think we have to love everyone, even the person that hurt us and caused us pain. That is difficult. When we set a goal that is difficult from the beginning, we might give up even before we start. As we consider how the Bible conceptualizes forgiveness, I hope we will be able to forgive others more readily with much less difficulty. One of the first places we have to look to understand the concept of forgiveness is the prayer the Lord Jesus taught us. In the Lord's Prayer, we find the following clause. It appears in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. We speak this verse every time we recite the Lord's Prayer. Maybe we speak these words without thinking too deeply about it. However, if you take a minute and think through the way this sentence is structured, you might find something strange. You may find something that does not quite flow right. It seems, for this verse to sound more natural, it should read, Allow us to forgive other debtors as you have forgiven our debts. In other words, it should say that because the Lord has forgiven our debts, 
we will also forgive others' debts. That would be like saying we would follow the example set by Jesus about forgiving others. Would you agree that that would seem more natural? However, Jesus did not teach us to pray like that, so we need to think through this discrepancy more carefully. In fact, this prayer, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, is a very loaded and maybe even fearful statement. If we take this statement as it is written, it basically says, God, if I do not forgive others, don't forgive me either. Treat me the same way just as I treat others. It is almost scary to realize we are praying to God, God, treat me just the same way that I treat others. Don't you think the way we treat others will change drastically if we truly understand the meaning of this prayer that Jesus taught us? Ultimately, I may not be able to shake off what that other person did to me, but I need to carry a heart that will help me not to hate the person anymore and try to forgive that person. In fact, that is the example God set for us. God did not hate us, but forgave us and accepted us when we went against him and had done nothing wrong. Justice is about making things fair and equitable. It is about rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. It entails paying back an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If someone harms my eye, I have the right to harm that person's eye. I am expected to get even with that person. That is justice as commonly understood. So what did Jesus mean when he said, as we also have forgiven our debtors? First, notice he acknowledges the existence of debt. Debt happens. It is something another person owes you. That is the person Jesus calls the debtor. With that, he seems to be implying that you have the right to call on it. However, Jesus takes the situation one step further. He tells us that we must give up that right and release the other person from the burden of that debt. If someone hits us, we are expected to hit back. In other words, we have the right to hit that person back. However, relinquishing that right is forgiveness. If someone hurts us, we have the right to hurt that person back. However, giving up that right, that is forgiveness. In some sense, forgiveness is easier than we think. It is about giving up our rights for Jesus. We do not immediately stop hating the person completely, or begin to love that person, or even go as far as serving that other person. These are what we will need to do eventually. However, the first step in forgiveness is giving up the right we have to make things even. Jesus is teaching us to pray that God would do the same to us if we give up the right that we possess and release the other person from the obligation of paying back the debt. Jesus expands on that teaching further. Here are verses 14 and 15 from Matthew chapter 6. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. 
Jesus emphasizes again the essence of forgiveness. We must pray to God to forgive us for our debt as we also have forgiven our debtors for their debt. Jesus is telling us that if we forgive others' debt, God will also forgive us. But if we do not forgive others' debt, God will not forgive our debt. What are your thoughts? Would you still not want to forgive others for their debt? Would you still not want to forgive them even at the risk of God not forgiving you? Which would be the wiser choice? Forgiveness. Depending on how we look at it, it could free us from bondage, or it could hold us in bondage. And Jesus is telling us to be free. We will continue next time. Our heart.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Meitler of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is True Nature of the Social Justice Movement. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Here's the gist of last week if you missed it. We kicked off the series by looking at the origins of fake news. Today we continue in our discussion of fake news. And I'm not even here to talk politics today. That's not an area that I'm interested in. I'm not even an expert in that area. There are, far, there are people far better equipped to do that. What I am here to talk to you about today is that the movement, this woke movement, is far more than a political movement. It is a spiritual movement. By their own admission, it is a spiritual movement. And what I'm about to say is going to shock some of you. It is a new religion. It is a new religion that has risen up and has swept across this country and around the globe. And if you think I'm exaggerating about this being a religion or a spiritual movement, let me prove it to you. Uh, Patrice Cullors, uh, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, has made no attempt to hide the fact that Black Lives Matter is in fact a spiritual movement. And again, I want to commend her for this. She has been very clear that this is a spiritual movement. Cullors, who grew up a Jehovah Witness and later became ordained in the West African religion of Ifa, draws upon not only Ifa but many religious traditions and many other sources of like seminary professors and university professors in her fight for social justice. In her own words, these are her words, not mine, the fight to save your life is a spiritual fight. 
It is a spiritual fight. She's not the only one. Melina Abdullah, who is the chair of Department of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles, and co-founder of Black Lives Matter LA, said that while the movement is a social justice movement, it is, and this is her own words, first and foremost, a spiritual movement. And again, I'm going to compliment these ladies because many times cults or false religions or whatever, religious movements will hide that fact. And they'll disguise that fact. They're right out in the open, and I'm going to commend them for that. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Abdullah has led her rallies. They're not just rallies. They're religious gatherings. She has led her gatherings in spiritual rituals, like the reciting of the names of those that have been taken by state violence, dead ancestors being called back to animate their own justice. She has also poured out libations on the ground as the groups she is leading collectively uh, chanted or chant this one word, ashe, ashe. You'll hear them if you're ever watching the news in one of these rallies. They'll say something and then you hear ashe. Um, ashe is basically an Ifa, a term out of the Ifa religion that it, it's your way of expressing support or affirmation for what is being said. And again, I compliment them. They're, they are out in the open about this. The church down here on the corner, St. James Episcopal Church, um, this week I noted that I drove by and I noticed that they hung out a gay pride flag. And I commend them for this. I don't agree with them. I don't agree with their position, but I commend them on the courage. They have the courage of their convictions at this point. They're letting their, their colors be known. And they're following, they have this, the, the courage of their convictions to make it be known where they stand. And, and for that, I can commend them, even though I radically disagree with them. And again, so I, I want to give credit where credit is due because these groups um, have worked hard and are working hard. And But I want to tell you something. They're working as hard as they're working, not just for political gains. It is because this is a spiritual movement. It is a religious, a new religion that is rising up and sweeping across our nation. And by the way, do you know who they're seeking to, their number one recruits, the number one, the people that are growing, it's your children and grandchildren. That's who they're going after primarily, but not exclusively. This is a powerful reminder, you guys, and I've said this way. If there's a verse, I said this last week, but if there was a verse that, that, that was really going to sum up this entire, entire sermon series on fake news, it is this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Many people, many Christians are wanting to know who's backing these organizations, who's backing them politically and financially and otherwise. As a Christian, you want to, I want to know? What spirits are behind these organizations? That's what I want to know. Too many people are over here in the political realm going, well, there's a political agenda. Who's backing them financially? This, that, and the other thing. I guess those are important questions. They are. Don't get me wrong. They're not. But listen, folks, those of us who are believers have to understand if this verse is true and these people are telling you this is a spiritual movement, I want to know the spirits that are behind it. Amen? Don't you? What is at stake here, you guys, in this country? Many of us are worried about the political direction the country's headed. And you should be. But there's something far more significant happening before our very eyes. You are watching the rise of a religious movement that has swept through the halls of Congress, through our universities, through our school systems, through churches and entire denominations. How pervasive is this new religion's influence? In 2019, the Southern Baptist Convention, so listen to this. Uh, I just pointed out the Episcopal Church down here in the corner. I'm not pointing at them trying to demean them in any way. No, that's not happening here at all. As a matter of fact, the, they're passionate. 
those in the woke movement are passionate to call me and you to their gospel, which we're going to talk about in a minute. I'm just as passionate to call them to our gospel. I love you. Love you guys over there. But you've got to come here. You've got to come to the true gospel. So when, when I point things out, don't think I'm doing it in a judgmental, condemn, condemning way. I'm simply pointing out the differences. But entire denominations have fallen to the woke movement. I grew up in the Presbyterian church, and much of the Presbyterian church has been gutted. There's still some um, branches that are good. Um, the Episcopal church, the Methodist church, uh, the Lutheran church is, is under attack from this woke movement, this woke religion. One of the stalwart denominations here in this country has been the Southern Baptist Convention, but even it is beginning to teeter a bit. In 2019, the Southern Baptist Convention passed what was known as Resolution 9. This was two years ago. This was a resolution officially adopting critical race theory and intersectionality as valid analytical tools for biblical interpretation. So why is that significant? Do you understand what critical race theory is? Critical race theory is based off of Marxism. Marxism, Karl Marx uh, in the 19th century, the 1800s, Karl Marx basically said that the bourgeoisie, that is the ruling class, oppressed the proletariat, that is the working class. And so Marxism says there's always oppression going on. And so we need to redistribute wealth. We need to do all these things to make things equal so that all things are equal. And by the way, this idea of oppression isn't just economic. You can move that concept into any other field that you want. You can say, well, there's economic oppression, there's racial oppression, men oppress women. We can say that heterosexual people are oppressing homosexual people if they tell them that they're living in sin or whatever. See, the point is, is that this idea of oppression is what permeates this movement. So Resolution 9 basically said, yes, we will essentially adopt a form of Marxist thinking in our understanding of biblical interpretation. <laughs> I got a phone call from a young man at our church uh, who's at school in Southern California who called me to tell me about a chapel that he had just sat through. And he was upset, and, and rightly so. Um, I was when he told me what was going on. But basically in this chapel, the chapel speaker was a lady who was taking them through Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman. And um, the idea was that when Jesus said these words right here, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, that Jesus was showing that he too was being influenced and was, had been um, taken in as an oppressor in his generation. The point that Jesus is making here is my ministry is to the Jews and the Jews only. There's going to come a time in which we reach the Gentiles. And so... But when he, when he uses this phrase, she's saying, look, that's an example of Jesus oppressing this woman, the Gentiles. And it was actually her response. Remember her response to Jesus? She says, well, it's even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table. That she's actually the hero of the story because she's standing up to oppressive thinking. Imagine going to a Christian chapel and the hero of the story isn't Jesus. Listen, folks. In case you're confused when you're reading the Bible, God is always the hero. <laughs> Amen? He's always the hero in every story, every time, bar none. It's a sobering reminder, guys, that very few institutions are out of reach of this new religion, including Christian universities, seminaries, churches, and yes, even church denominations. The LGBT community, and again, not condemn, I'm, not, I'm not doing this in a judgmental, mean-spirited way. I'm just letting you know. Has, they have strong, a strong spiritual component to their 
mission and agenda as well. To their credit, this community has made massive, and I mean massive inroads into Christian denominations all over this country and the world. They are not just seeking acceptance, by the way. There was a time in which it was, can you accept us? It has transformed. They are seeking to create a radically more progressive Christianity altogether. And they are doing this by diligently redefining orthodox biblical teachings on subjects like gender, marriage, and sexual ethics. And if you think that I'm making this up, I'm not. There is actually a task force in the LGBT community task force, and their vision is engaging communities to support their policies. So they are, again, to their credit, like I said, I'm going to compliment these groups a lot. To their credit, they got their ducks in a row. They are on the march. They know what they're doing. And so it is important that you and I understand this, you guys, today. Here's what you need to understand today. These are not just political movements. It is a new religion. It is a new religion. See, the woke movement understands something that Christians have always historically understood. You know what Christians have understood, what what we've been good at? We have understood that to truly keep One of the reasons that this country is so great is because it is and was and has been primarily built on the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? We understand the connection between one's personal religious beliefs and and how that religious belief shapes a society, right? We understand that. We're not the only ones that have made that connection. These groups know that too. See, if these groups didn't understand that, they would just be focused on the political, But they understand that if they truly want to change the society, it has got to be a spiritual movement. It has got to be a spiritual movement. Because if you're going to change society, you must change the religious, spiritual, and moral foundation of that society. They get that to their credit again. And that's exactly what we see happening before our very eyes. Again, the fake news is simply this, you guys. The woke movement is nothing more than a social and political movement seeking to seeking justice for the oppressed and the marginalized. It is not. It is that, but it is so much more than that. It is so much more than that. It is a spiritual movement seeking to redefine the spiritual, moral, and ethical convictions of people everywhere. Not surprisingly, the woke movement has everything you would expect a religion to have. Everything from its own standards of morality to its own definition of sin, complete with a call for sinners to repent. Did you know that? This is the woke movement. That's right. Repentance is very much a part of the woke movement. So in the woke movement, sin, I'm gonna, sin is basically defined this way. And wordsmithing, you can find it slightly differently, but here it is. Sin is defined primarily as anything these groups deem as oppressive, offensive, or bigoted behavior by those in positions of privilege or power. So that's what, it, that's, that's what sin is. So sin isn't... Um, they're not using the Bible to define sin. They're, they're using basically Marxist ideology to define sin. So what is repentance? Repentance is this. Repentance is a continuous journey to rid oneself of any privilege and power. Okay? And the reason I say it is a continuous journey is because there are many within this new religion who think that those people who have been in places of privilege and power at best can only recover not be fully recovered. In other words, you can only be a recovering oppressor, not a fully recovered oppressor. You can only be a recovering racist, not a fully recovered racist. That's the gospel of the New Woke Movement. The the gospel of the New Woke Movement is you're a sinner. You need to repent, but you can't be fully healed. You will be marred in your privilege for as long as you live. 
The true gospel is what? Of course there's sin in my heart. And the sin that I'm truly guilty of, guess what? Has been fully forgiven. Amen? I am forgiven in Christ and I will live as a free man and a free woman in a free society. Where do those in the woke religion derive their morality? Well, the answer seems to be here, there, and everywhere. Those in the movement will draw their convictions, and I've already pointed out some of them, from the teachings of everyone from university professors to community activists to political revolutionaries like Karl Marx to different world religions from around the world, except Christianity in most cases. Let me give you a great example of what I'm talking about. This can be, um, a great example can be seen in how the woke movement defines the word justice. Do they look to the Bible to define what the word justice means? No, they do not. In the woke movement, justice is defined, like I said, primarily by Marxist ideology. In other words, if, if I'm in a position that disagrees with you, I'm going to be an oppressor of you. And so in the woke movement, for example, just as Karl Marx taught, the rich, the bourgeoisie, inherently oppress the poor or the working class, the proletariat. So what is the only just thing to do? Redistribute wealth. Take it from those that have and give it to those that don't. And they're going to say, well, this is a very Christian thing to do. Take it. Let's, let's, let's share in our wealth. The problem with that, it's not biblical. You've heard of the Protestant work ethic, correct? It's built on principles in the Bible. The Protestant work ethic, as a door is to its hinges, hinges so a sluggard is to its bed, right? Why, do, what, what, why did the early Protestants, the Puritans, work so hard? Because they believe the Bible calls us to personal responsibility, hard work, and diligence, and perseverance, right? He who gathers money little by little makes it grow. That's what the Bible says. So as a door is to its hinges, so a sluggard is to his bed. Um, take Take an example. It says, the Bible continuously says through the book of Proverbs, look at the ants, look at the birds, they store. Um, So the point is that things like the Protestant work ethic to those in the new woke movement are seen as unjust and racist. If you say, hey, we should work hard and save our money and be diligent and be personally responsible, you're a racist. That's part of white male-dominated evangelicalism which seeks to oppress others with their views of work and personal responsibility. That's the Bible's view of work and personal responsibility. I'm not making this stuff up. I didn't make up as a door to its hinges so a sluggard is to its bed. I didn't make up he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. I didn't make that up. The fact is the woke movement stands diametrically opposed to historic Orthodox Christianity in just about every way conceivable. Remember, guys, it's not a political movement. It's a religion. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let me show you the true nature of this religion. So as an example, the woke religion is pledged to the complete dismantling of patriarchy. Now, patriarchy, so men, brace yourselves because this is going to sting because men, you are sinners right? Ladies, I'm kind of curious. I asked this of the other, the other services. I think most of the men in here feel under attack in this country. Ladies, would you agree? Would you feel like the men are under attack? I don't know if the ladies know it, but men, do you feel under attack? Yes. Yeah, I hope. I, I do. I feel it. Here's the point. I don't know why you guys aren't talking to me today. <laughs> Talk to me. Here's the point. 
The woke religion is pledged to the complete dismantling of all forms of patriarchy, which means if you hold to the traditional biblical teaching of the distinct but complementary roles of male and female as described in the Bible, you are guilty of being a misogynist. You're, a misog- you're guilty of misogyny, right? So in the Bible, it says the man is the head of the wife. The wife is to submit to the husband. The children are to submit to their parents. Guess what? You're an oppressor. You're a misogynist. In the woke movement, if you are a male, you are most assuredly infected with toxic masculinity, right? Just as if you are white, you are inherently a racist. If you are a male, you are toxic. You have a toxic masculinity. That's right. In the new woke religion, a man who does things that the Bible calls him to do, like lead, provide, and protect, is in reality toxic to society and needs to repent. See, if you, if you believe that the man is the head of the home and the, and the wife should submit and the, the kids should obey their parents, you're a misogynist. If you believe that men should lead, provide, and protect for their families, as the Bible talks about, uh, you need to repent. Like I said, repentance is very much a part of this. The woke religion is also pledged to the complete dismantling of all forms of heteronormative thinking. In other words, if you are, consider yourself a heterosexual, or you think heteronorm, you think in that way, it means that if you hold to the orthodox biblical teachings of the sexuality and gender, you are guilty of, you're going to be guilty of these sins, amongst others, homophobia and transphobia. So, so for example, if you hold the biblical positions on any, four, on, on any of these issues, you're going to be guilty of those sins. When I say it is, this new movement is not political. It is religious in nature and is diametrically opposed to Christianity in just about every way conceivable, including its gospel. Our gospel is radically different from their gospel. We define sin differently. We define that our Savior is different. And we receive forgiveness radically different as well. Listen, if you want to be part of this new woke religion, you simply have to be willing to embrace a brand new morality a brand new religion, and a brand new God. It is not the God of the Bible that they are following. It is a God that they have made up that has been drawn from, again, university professors, different world religions, um, different people, political uh, revolutionaries. Their God is a mixture of all of these things. It is not a morality based on the clear teaching of Scripture. Sadly, this woke religion has not only been tremendously, like I said, successful on the political front, Christian institutions left and right are falling. They are abandoning the biblical way of thinking. You guys, it's really simple. (laughs) I didn't say this in the other, but I was thinking of it in between services. It's just so simple, you guys. Just trust this. Stand on the word of God. Trust this. And don't budge from it. Don't be ashamed of it. That's why Paul says in, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of what this teaches. You're going to be accused of being many things. This is just a short list of what you're going to be accused of. But don't ever be ashamed of what this teaches. This brings freedom. This does not oppress anyone. You shall know the truth and the truth will do what? Sets you free. And they're going to say, well, you're an oppressor. And I'm going to go, I beg to differ. I am following the one who came to set people free, and my gospel is different from yours. Repent of your sexual sin. Repent of your true sin and turn to the Lord. Whatever your sin is, just as I have repented from my sin, turn to the one who will forgive you. And guess what? All that come to Christ, he will drive away none that come to him. 
He will receive you and he will forgive. That's why our gospel is so much better than their gospel. That's why I wanted to say, you're calling me to your gospel with passion and you're good at it. And man, you have really been diligent about getting that gospel out. But I'm here to tell you of another gospel and another savior who died in your place, to die to take your sins, turn to him and run to him, repent of your sin, which is true sin, and run to the one who can save you. By the way, none of this is new. The woke movement, I said, it feels like it's new, but it's not. We saw the first fruits of this some 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago with the feminist movement. The feminist movement came on, burst onto the scene, and you can say that they made some good gains for women in this country, and we can acknowledge that. The problem was is that they were progressive. They didn't know where to stop, and so they kept pressing the issues, and so they kept pressing the issues to the point where they said that uh, what the Bible teaches about the man being the head of the house, what we would call the complementary view of what the Bible teaches that women and men are different, but complementary. It's called the complementary view of Scripture of men and women. They said that the Bible, that teaching is oppressive to women, and women need to be, and here's the key word that they used when I was growing up, liberated. This is where the women's liberation movement came from. Women need to be liberated from that sort of oppressive, the oppressive thinking that's found in here. So we saw the first fruits of this woke movement in groups like um, the feminist movement, but it didn't stop there. And we saw even more fruit being born about 20 years ago. For example, when the Episcopal Church in America first uh, elected its first openly gay bishop, uh, Gene Robinson. I don't know if you guys remember this. This was a milestone that this movement crossed. They elected their first gay bishop. And like I said, if you think that this is just a political movement, you are gravely mistaken. It is a religion. It is a religion that has risen up over time. It has swept across this country. It has infiltrated the halls of Congress, our universities, our churches, our denominations. And it is going after, I'm telling you guys, it is going after primarily right now our children and grandchildren. It is not just in the universities anymore. Their agenda is all the way down to the elementary school, and it is aggressive. It is aggressive. And by the way, I, want to, I said it before. I'll say it again. If you are a Christian school teacher, you're a hero because you are on the front lines of all the front lines stand your ground, be strong. We've got your back. You are a true hero. Would you guys agree with me? Give it up for the teachers that are in here, the Christian teachers. Thank you for what you're doing. And for that, and, and obviously we know the police, the police, just police and fire, they're heroes too. I mean, the, anyway, I won't, I won't spend too much time there. Since that time, the Episcopal Church has appointed other gay bishops as well as um, approving official liturgy of, for blessing same-sex marriages. So um, they've taken great steps within the Episcopal Church. I just, did I tell you guys this? I can't remember because I preached at other services, but before I came in this morning, I popped on the news and the Methodist Church in the UK has also officially, has now have officially, ble- is going to officially bless same-sex marriages today. And by the way, it doesn't stop. They're per- it's, it's completely, when I say they're seeking to start and birth a progressive religion, I mean progressive in that it doesn't stop. Here's another example. Today, the new woke religion is so progressive that it has made further religious transformation to which you have to give them credit. The Sierra Pacific Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church recently elected its first transgender bishop, a man who now identifies as a woman going by the name of the Reverend Megan Rohrer. Now, again, I don't condemn Megan. I don't know what his name was when he was a man. She's part of a religion that is preaching a gospel that they want me to come to. But I love her, him, enough to preach the true gospel and to call her to come to Christ and to come to the one that can forgive her, transform her, and say, well, this is who I am. Listen, we are all 
the, the, the good news of the gospel isn't just that you're forgiven of your sins, it's that God can change you from the inside out. He can change your desires. He can change you. This is, the, this is the gospel that we preach. Our God is a God of power and of might. This new woke religion, as I said, has aggressively sought to infiltrate educational institutions of every kind. And you know why? Because that's their church. That is their church in many respects. They have infiltrated the educational institutions because that is their new church, not with the goal of education, but with the goal of indoctrination. Woke, and you know what that makes woke teachers and professors? They're no longer teachers and professors if they're woke. They are now pastors and priests residing over churches that we call universities, presiding over classes that meet not just once a week, which we would call Sunday school, where we would indoctrinate our children in the truth of the gospel. They're presiding over churches that meet 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that we're gladly sending our children to, to where they can be discipled under these pastors and priests that we call professors and teachers. By the way, the woke movement even has forms of Gnosticism in it. Do you know what Gnosticism is? So in the first century, the gospels went forth, but there was what was known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism basically said, we have a secret knowledge that you don't have. So the Gnostics were real big on, we have this secret knowledge, and you need to have this secret knowledge to truly be saved. And if you don't have it, you're in big trouble. That's actually present in this new woke religion. As one Christian apologist said, I'm going to quote him because he can do it better than me, critical race theory claims that members of oppressed groups have a special access to truth because of their lived experiences of oppression. Such insights are unavailable to members of an oppressor group who are blinded by their privilege. So, you, you, and I'm not saying that to, to, to berate them or anything. This is what they believe, but you have to understand what is at stake. You can't understand the nature of what, you can never understand what they know. Now, they can understand what you know, I get apparently, but you can't understand what they know. Um, this apologist goes on to say this, consequently, any appeals to objective evidence or reason made by the dominant group are actually surreptitious bids for continued institutional power. So for example, what he's saying here is that if this person over here says, you're oppressing me, and I go, well, here are the facts that say I'm not, they're going to say, that's just you trying to keep power. See, because this movement, this religion isn't truly based on truth, it's feelings, it is, I feel oppressed. I feel triggered. This is a term. You, I feel triggered by you. I feel oppressed by you. I feel you're being aggressive towards me. Well, I know you feel that way, but just because I say that that lifestyle, according to the Bible, is sin, that's not me oppressing you. That's me telling you the truth that can set you free. Amen? Amen. This is what it's saying. And again, I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm not trying to belittle anyone in that movement. There was a time when I wasn't a Christian and I didn't, you know, I was, I believed the ways of the world. So there's no, it's in love that we say these things. We love you enough to tell you the truth. And if we have to suffer for it, which we will, again, and again, I I mentioned this last week, if we have to suffer for it, as in the Christian religion, if you offend me, I forgive you. In this religion, if you offend me, you attack me and I'm canceled. Even if you attack me, I love you enough to tell you the truth. Just as there was a time in my life where people loved me enough to tell me the truth and I bit their hands and bit, you know, went after them. Ironically, here's the, iron- here's the irony of it. In her book, White Fragility, 
Um, sociologist and author Robert, Robin D'Angelo states that only when privileged white people recognize their inherent racial prejudice can, can society tackle racism. This, of course, begs the question, in this new woke religion, is it possible for privileged white people to recognize their inherent racism or prejudice? She says we can, but there's many within the group that say we can't. So what is it? I'm confused. What has been the end result of this new woke religion? Unlike historic Christianity, guys, which seeks to set people free from the guilt of their sins by proclaiming the gospel of the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Think about it. Think about King David. David, he commits adultery with Bathsheba and then kills her husband, Uriah. A man like that surely should suffer the rest of his life with guilt, right? No, this is the good news of the gospel, that even a man that stumbles as bad as that can be forgiven if he turns with a repentant heart to the Lord. Amen? That's the gospel. That is the good news. Unlike that gospel, the new rogue religion seeks to saddle people with a false guilt for sins of oppression and bigotry for simply speaking the truth, with no hope of ever being fully forgiven, fully restored, fully healed. Listen, false, false guilt is a real thing that can ruin people's lives and leave people in unending agony over things which they are not truly guilty. And yet that is exactly what I see happening with this new religion that has swept our country and around the world. It is producing, it is accusing many of sins for which they are not necessarily guilty. Now, is, has there been racism in my heart, in my life? You bet. Will there be racist thoughts in my head maybe sometime in the future? Pro maybe, probably. I'm a fallen man. I'm a human being. So I'm not, I'm not denying that we all struggle with certain things, but this idea here of being called to repent of being a systemic racist, a continual oppressor, not only do I deny that, I'm not going to live with that guilt, a false guilt. And even if I were guilty of that, here's the good news of my gospel. I'm forgiven of it. Amen? Amen? And even if I commit adultery with my wife and then kill the man that was married to her, if I truly return to the Lord with a repentant heart, he will forgive me and I can live as a child of God free. And I can say things like this. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Who in the world can say that but a man or woman that's been forgiven in total, total by the Lord? Amen? That's our gospel. That is our gospel. The result is an entire generation of people loaded down with a false guilt who are desperately seeking penance and forgiveness with very little hope of finding it. So this is my opinion. You guys can disagree, agree or disagree with me. I have no doubt that many people who have joined these movements don't even necessarily know what these movements are about. They simply have joined these movements out of a sense of penance. They have been accused of being a homophobic, transphobic, racist, or whatever. And regard, they're, they're like, I am? Well, then what do I need to do? I guess I'll join you. Why are so many people rioting, looting, and toppling statues? I honestly think it's a means of penance. They're seeking to be forgiven by these groups and be accepted by these groups. Good luck. But if you truly want to be forgiven and accepted, I know one who will forgive you. His name's Jesus. I know one who will accept you. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you turn to him with a repentant heart, he'll forgive you. And you don't have to topple statues. As a matter of fact, you don't have to do anything but come as a, with childlike faith and cry out to him, Lord, forgive me, and, he, and you're forgiven. Amen? That's the gospel that we preach
So all of this begs the question, where does it leave those of us who are believers? Here's where I'm going to finish. On the bottom of your sermon notes, I listed a couple of things, but here they are. First, don't believe the fake news that this movement, the woke movement, is simply a fight for social equality in this country, folks. It is not. It is a religious, spiritual movement that is sweeping across this country through the halls of Congress, through the halls of our universities and schools, and it is seeking to lay a new spiritual, moral, and ethical foundation for this country. And for society, forget this country, society, that is what is at stake. What should burden you is not the money and politicians backing this movement, but what are the spirits? Our fight is not against flesh and blood, right? But against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What should burden those of us in this room right now is what is the spiritual, uh, who, what are the spirits behind this movement? It is very much by their own admission, a spiritual movement with clear spiritual objectives. Do not lose sight of that, guys. Do not lose sight of that. Number two, don't let yourself be straddled with false guilt. Is everyone in here guilty of some forms of racism, sexism, or whatever? Of course, we're fallen people. But you're forgiven people if you're in Christ. Go sin no more, but live as free and forgiven people because you are. Amen? Live like this. Oh, that's, that's her white fragility. There's false guilt. Let's get through those. Let's get to the good news. Here's the good news. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Number three, furthermore, as Bible-believing Christians, I've already said this, boldly stand on the Word of God. Be completely unashamed to preach the whole counsel of God. That means if somebody is mired in sexual sin, if somebody is mired in some other sexual sin or some other type of sin, it doesn't matter what the sin is, don't be afraid to call a spade spade. Even if you're called an oppressor, a bigot, an oppressor, oh well, Stand on God's word, proclaim the word of God, because believe it or not, you are the most loving person in that moment because you have the courage of your conviction to speak the truth, the truth that will truly set people free. Do not be afraid, you guys, to proclaim the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, to the Greek, and then to the Greek. Listen, we're living in a day and age in which you are going to be accused and mocked and ridiculed for your beliefs, and you're going to be accused of being an oppressor, um, a bigot, a homophobic, and all of these other things. Folks, do not be ashamed of the gospel that you plant your feet on. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Amen? So I finished with a question, you guys. Here it is. As a believer, are you ready to swim upstream against the powerful current of this new woke, and here's the key word, religion, because that's what it is. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you this day. And God, we realize that our fight is not against flesh and blood. It is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And God, we are being, um, by their own admission, running into a movement that is spiritual in nature, religious in nature. God, that is, has everything from its own morality to its own um, definition of sin to its own standard for repentance. And God, it is opposed to everything that we see in the gospel. So God, make us a courageous and bold people in this generation. The Bible says the righteous are as bold as lions. God, what this country needs are lions roaming this land. God, make us lions in this generation. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Oh,
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time from The God of Abraham, we saw the scene of the birth of the promised son Isaac. Through 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah, an impossible thing happened. God's word was fulfilled. The Bible repeatedly used the phrase, as he has said, to show how the Lord God made something so impossible to us happen so naturally. The reason is because the Lord God said it would happen. God's word will surely be fulfilled regardless of the situation. From this point on, things are happening at a very fast pace. It took a very long time for Isaac to be born. Many chapters in the Bible contain the story of what happened before Isaac's birth. However, as soon as the promised son Isaac was born, the story of what happened afterwards moves at a fast pace. Today, we'll first read Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 13. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son, whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham, was mocking, and she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. When we read this part, we may think that the seven or eight-year-old Ishmael is mocking Isaac who's one or two years old. This is because we didn't read the Bible precisely and we think based on the nuance of the words. We may think, isn't Sarah's reaction too extreme about the kids playing around? Some of us may think that Sarah is showing so much contempt towards Hagar just because she's the mistress. I had such a thought as well. However, if we carefully read the Bible, this isn't so. The Bible already told us the age difference between Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham had Ishmael at the age of 86, and he had Isaac at the age of 100, so there is an age difference of 14 years. If Isaac was weaned when he was 3 years old, then Ishmael was 17 years old. If Isaac was weaned when he was 5 years old, then Ishmael was a 19-year-old young man. This shows how Sarah didn't show such an extreme reaction to Ishmael mocking Isaac as if the kids were just playing around. The original word for mocking is sachak. 
This word also means laugh, and it is the root of Isaac's name. From Genesis chapter 17, when God said he would give a son next year around this time, Abraham laughed and Sarah laughed. They laughed because God's promise seemed to be preposterous and impossible. The word sachak was used to say that they laughed. They laughed and God told them to name the son Ishak, which we pronounce as Isaac, and it comes from the word sachak, meaning laughter. Ishmael was sachak at Isaac. Hebrew is amusing in this way of using similar pronunciation or same words. The meaning of sachak is mocking. So did Ishmael mock Isaac? Or, because of the large age difference, did the older brother play around and look down upon the little child? What could have happened to make Sarah so angry? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how Ishmael mocked Isaac. Therefore, there are many interpretations. In Jewish literature, there's an interpretation that says, since Abraham held such a grand feat for Isaac's weaning, Ishmael was jealous and he mocked and looked down upon Isaac by saying he was the eldest son of the household. Some rabbis interpret it, by saying Ishmael did an obscene act. Other rabbis say Ishmael taught Isaac how to perform sacrifice for idol worship. However, as I mentioned, the Bible doesn't record how Ishmael mocked Isaac, so we do not know. We do know that Ishmael was not of young age and was fully capable of thinking. He had hostility towards his young brother and mocked him and did not take part in the joy of the feast. Evidently, it was a sin. Regarding the story of Ishmael and Isaac, Galatians chapter 4 verse 29 says, At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. Ishmael wasn't just mocking Isaac, but straining with hostility. When we carefully read this verse in Genesis chapter 21, we can see something very unusual. We may think that Ishmael mocked Isaac, but the Bible doesn't say it like that. In Genesis chapter 21 verse 9, it doesn't say Ishmael, but the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. It was Abraham's son, not the promised son, but the son of the flesh born from the Egyptian servant. Although Ishmael was born first, he was not the promised son. This is clearly being emphasized here. We may think that this seems cold and heartless. However, even on the last day, the promised son and the son of the flesh will be sharply divided. Ishmael, who was the son of the Egyptian servant Hagar, didn't enjoy Isaac's feast and persecuted Isaac with hostility. Sarah saw this and got angry. As a mother who had a precious son at the age of 90, it is understandable that Sarah got angry when she saw the older half-brother despising Isaac. 
Therefore, she told Abraham to get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Abraham was worried when Sarah said this to him. Before having Isaac, Abraham believed Ishmael was the son God promised, and he raised him with joy for at least 14 years. Just because Isaac was born, Abraham's feelings didn't suddenly disappear. If we look at Abraham's life, it seems like he was very affectionate, especially towards his younger flesh and blood. He had affection towards Lot and Ishmael as well. Therefore, even though he knew Sarah's word was right, it was difficult for him to send Ishmael away. God knew Abraham's worry and said this to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Then God confirms by saying, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. God is saying Ishmael's offspring is not Abraham's offspring. Then God says, I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Hagar has tried to flee in the past. At that time, after finding out that she was pregnant, Hagar despised her mistress Sarah. For that reason, Sarah received permission from Abraham and mistreated Hagar. Therefore, Hagar left Sarah and ran away. Then God's angel met Hagar and told her to return home and obey her mistress. Why did God do that? If Hagar was going to be eventually driven out, why didn't God let Hagar flee at that time? Why did he tell Hagar to return home? It's because with God, there is a time for everything, and things must be done within God's timing. Even though Hagar would be driven out, she cannot flee whenever she wants just because things become difficult. She will be driven out when it's the proper time. Following God's word, Abraham woke up early in the morning and sent them off. However, he only gives his servant and his son some food and a skin of water as they leave for the desert. As Sarah said, her servant and her son has no inheritance. There is nothing to share with them. It's because Hagar had no right. Although she looks pitiful, there is nothing that can be done. Hagar didn't have the right to receive an inheritance. The servant and her son have been driven out, and they are wandering near Beersheba. They were lost. Verse 15 says the water in the skin was gone. Verse 16 says, Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. The young Ishmael fainted first in the heat. Hagar put him under the bush and she went to a place far away because she couldn't watch him die and she sobbed. It is ironic how the Bible says the place Hagar is wandering around is Beersheba. 
Beersheba means well of the oath, and there were seven wells in the area. It's a place where water was abundant. This is the place where Hagar was lost and was dying because lack of water. They are dying in a place where there was a lot of water. It seems like it's portraying their spiritual state. God heard the sound of Ishmael's cry and sent his angel. We shared in the past that Ishmael's name means God has listened. According to his name, God listened to his sound and responded. The angel of God went to Hagar and spoke. What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. He said, do not be afraid because she was frightened. In the past, God promised that a great nation will come from Ishmael and Hagar confessed, you are the God who sees me. When she was faced with hardship, she didn't think of that promise and instead gave up and cried because she thought she would die. This was their spiritual state. When they can't hold on to the promised word, they are in despair when they look at the reality. The angel of God reminded her again that God will make the boy into a great nation. Then God opened Hagar's eyes. What happened after God opened Hagar's eyes? Verse 19 says, Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God didn't make the well of water. He just showed her the well of water that was already there. When our spiritual eyes are darkened, we cannot see the things around us. Therefore, we live only when we are spiritually awake. If we are spiritually blind, we can't see the things that are there and we will die within it. Verse 20 says, God was with the boy as he grew up. This shows that God kept his promise with Abraham. God was with Ishmael, not for Ishmael's sake, but for Abraham's sake. Unfortunately, Ishmael became an archer while he lived in the desert. He became a hunter. In the Bible, especially in the book of Genesis, an archer or hunter is often portrayed in a negative way. The Babylon king Nimrod was a hunter and warrior before God. Later on, among Isaac's two sons, Esau became a hunter. We can interpret this as Ishmael being far from God. Verse 21 says, While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. We'll conclude our study here. It would be good for us to realize the great difference between the promised child and the one who is not the promised child. We have received precious grace by becoming the children of promise through Jesus Christ. We have become children who gain God's kingdom as an inheritance. Therefore, we must be ready and live as those who have received God's kingdom as an inheritance. If we don't, then like Ishmael, we will go against God in the desert and end our lives. We'll end God of Abraham here. I'll see you next week. Goodbye.
Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Oh, we live for you Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever say Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you We live for you Yeah.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.